entering the take-up, place to gather when the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and I'm here with my co-host and the managing editor of thetakeup.com, Andrew Wyatt. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Today, we are processing Stone Cold as our guest, Catherine Coldiron, her pick for the new Critics Are Stupid program, which is being co-presented with the Webster University film series here in St. Louis, beginning with a showing of film series director Pete Timmerman's pick, Gabo, February 8th, 7 p.m. But before all that, we've got a few new things now showing. And then finally, one more thing. Andrew, I have been watching no new movies. In fact, I'm surprised you came up with new movies. I thought <laughs> they stopped making them. And all we have is prestige limited series. But I got to tell you, have you been watching season four of True Detective Night Country? Yes, I have. Okay, we're, we're going to be so short on this. Are you, are you, do you like it? Yeah, yeah, I like it a lot, actually. I like it a lot. It's Jodie Foster plays like a, a grizzled old cop in this very uh, small fictional town in Alaska called Ennis, which, as is proposed, is like some sort of uh, locus of of existence where like the living and the dead might coexist. All of this is very like soft horror, but there are really, truly horrific things in this. It's Issa Lopez. I'm not really familiar with her work, but she's taken over show running duties from Nick. She directed one of my favorite horror films of the last 10 years. Tigers, are not, af- Tigers are not afraid. Right. That's yeah. how I know her name. I don't, I haven't seen that film, but I remember you, it's like, it's on my letterbox watch list and then i keep running by it on i do recommend it particularly in the context of this series because i think it provides a lot of people seem a little bit baffled by the tone that season four is taking vis-a-vis the previous the previous season and i think if you watch tigers are not afraid it will give you something of a key to understanding her approach to both genre genre fiction generally but also blending of genres and how she mm-hmm. does it how she likes to do it but yeah i'm, I'm enjoying uh, it so far it's i'm not i'm an easy sell but this one is really interesting like it's, it's a fascinating sort of mix so far only two episodes in though yeah only two episodes in there are there are a lot of hallmarks that she has talked about specifically john carpenter's the thing uh, you know it's a snow covered it's at the point where there is no daytime it is just steeped in noir aesthetic values snow covered noir but also has a horrific thing at the middle of it that is the the mystery fiona shaw is there playing a stoner medium say no more say Uh, no more second detective is callie reese she was in a fantastic little taken riff Move thrill crime thriller a couple years ago called Catch the Fair One, where she allows her. She so she plays the sister of a woman in that movie who who is sex trafficked, and she allows herself to be sex trafficked so she can go undercover into the ring and get her sister sister out. Completely badass, completely badass, like Liam Neeson riff that goes in some really unexpected ways by the end. And this season seems to be sort of an inverse answer to the self-seriousness 
the machismo Heal it all toss test testosterone driven first season and they have such a, a beautiful dynamic that is sh- shrouded in mystery and talked about and talked around you get little glimpses of things but i'm really digging its unique tone a unique tone informed by a lot of things that you know i love and we love nordic there's some nordic it's filmed yeah. in iceland based in alaska but there is a lot of nordic noir vibes you know if you've mm-hmm. seen insomnia the original there's a lot of that in there there's like you say the thing there's a little bit of the vampire film 30 days a night so yeah a lot of great influences lopez said something really interesting on the official podcast which i've been dipping in and out you're of. deep you're deep into this <laughs> i just listened to the official well, podcast the hbo always does an official podcast and they're usually pretty good this one's a mm. little different than the usual sort of interview format it's a little more more edited up like a docu like a feature making a featurette not my preference. I prefer the ones that are more interview based, but Lopez is in it. I wanted to listen to it because she's in it sort of explaining the genesis of the series and her own techniques. And um, she says that, you know, there is no true detective season one without seven. There's no seven without silence of the lambs. So the fact that she was able to get Jodie Foster in her three steps removed from the silence of the lambs in limited series is sort of like, the coup that she can't believe that she got. Well, you can see this character being Clarice Starling after Clarice makes some bad decisions. <laughs> being ground down for 30 years, yeah. Right, right. All right, well, I, I don't want to talk about it too much. There, It is only going to be six episodes, which is awesome to me. It's streaming on Max and airing. It's our Sunday night program on HBO. All right, you've got three new films that are available to stream now or soon. Mm-hmm. Let's start with The Seeding. Yeah, so this is a film directed by a filmmaker, I think it's previously only been a documentarian, Barnaby Clay. He shot a documentary about rock photographer Mick Rock. I don't know how I feel about this film. So it's an art horror film. It's basically a two-hander that's taking, the setup is very similar to the 1964 Japanese film, The Woman in the Dunes. So there's this guy out in the desert who's taking pictures. He goes out to the desert, presumably somewhere in California or Nevada, to take pictures of an eclipse, a solar eclipse. And he gets kind of lost while he's out there and led off by a random weird kid in the desert and ends up climbing down a ladder into this pit, like a canyon, like isolated sort of closed off box canyon and in the pit is a house and in the house is a woman played by caitlin shield and if you Mm. you know indie cinema you know caitlin shield she's sort of yeah she's an alex ross perry girls but i keep going when i think of her she's a sort of indie filmmaking royalty i guess in my mind she's goes up everything he sort of becomes trapped in this pit as the the rope ladder that he climbed down disappears in the morning and now he's sort of in this location and he doesn't know how to get out. Other than that startup premise, it doesn't bear much resemblance to Woman in the Dunes. It's more of a art horror slash folk folk horror thing. I don't even know how to quite to describe it. It's it's mildly interesting. Some a lot of great style in it. You know, it uses these like intertidal cards introducing different different sections of the film that have like still life of food that is slowly rotting over the course of Yum. like the intertitles get which kind of tells you a little bit about his aesthetic sensibility right out of the gate. I guess at the end of the day I didn't much care for it. It feels a bit like a film that's relying on us have seen other 
horror film to understand how it works. We have to have seen The Hills Have Eyes. We have to have seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We have to have seen Midsummer. We have to have seen a lot of these other films to understand the situation that this guy is in. The character evidently has never seen a single movie in his life because he makes a lot of really dumb decisions. <laughs> it, I like it actually best when it's the, when it's least arty, when it's going more towards the survival horror of, I'm in this completely impossible situation and how the hell am I going to get out of it? And Caitlin Sheila is sort of never bad to have in your movie. And like she, she does this sort of blank, cryptic, she has this blank cryptic quality. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I really love it in her. And she, she's well cast as this woman who he, this guy can't quite get a whole read on her, like what she's doing, why she's there. Her story keeps changing. There's good. Like I said, it's, it's aesthetically interesting. It's got some good creepy ambient music. I'm not sure it ever really goes anywhere. It kind of goes for like over the top situational gross, psychologically unnerving situational gross out stuff by the end. Not sure it really ever amounts to anything, but it is available to rent right now. On as of, as of this recording, it is available sort of to rent wherever. What about a film that uh, you, about more trapped people <laughs> having a week over there? Trunk locked in, and the title of this movie is a little confusing to me. So the title of the movie is literally Trunk colon locked, locked in. in. Which made me think that locked in the trunk or it's a sequel. Yeah, that's what I thought. The original trunk, they weren't locked in. Like they could have very freely gotten out of the trunk. And I haven't been able to decipher what the hell is with this weird title. There are apparently other movies called Trunk from this past decade that have nothing to do with this movie. So I think maybe it's just... Trust me, there are many (laughs) titles called Trunk. There's a new Korean TV series called The Trunk as well. So I don't know. All I know is that, so weird title weirdness aside, this is a German thriller, sort of the single location thriller reduced to its reductio ad absurdum. The entire movie takes place in the trunk of a car where a woman wakes up, not really remembering how she got there or what her situation is, just knowing that she, her legs don't work. Her legs don't seem, she seems to be paralyzed from the waist down. She doesn't seem to, she's not bound or gagged or anything, but she can't seem to figure out what her situation is. And it basically takes place in real time over about 90 minutes as she sorts out, A, what the hell has happened to her, and B, how the heck is she going to get out of the situation? Like these kinds of things. This I do is something too. I always respond to. Is I it do good? Too. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Right. Very tightly directed by uh, a filmmaker named Mark Scheitzer. It's on Amazon Prime, even though it's in German. It's it's I guess it's they've, Amazon's distributing in the United States, put it on their service. I don't really can't really tell tell you much more about the plot because that's essentially a spoiler. But like a lot of these movies that that have a similar premise, it sort of there are some sort of conveniences like, oh, she has a cell phone and it has some battery left and she manages to get into a position where she can call somebody. But of course, that that ends up just complicating the plot and leading into some other unexpected directions. I enjoyed it a lot. It's tense. It has great good soundtrack, good central performance. It's basically a solo play. I mean, the the archetype for this type of movie, in my mind, is the Ryan Reynolds film Buried, which I think is an I think is a legitimate thriller masterpiece, and not enough people talk about it. The everything else has sort of been a variation on that film's excellence, but this is a pretty good. I'm thinking of also like Oxygen on Netflix. Oxygen, is another one. Right. Think about kind of phone booth too. Kind of, you know, just the small one setting places. Yeah, so I, I enjoyed it. Streaming now on Amazon. All right, final horror wreck is a documentary about my guy. Mario Gento, 
colon panico. Okay. <laughs> More title nonsense. Is it I, here's the thing I want to know. Is is he involved or is it or is it ghost? He is involved. He's not directing right. his own his own documentary. So I All take right. that for what All you right. will. This is All directed right. by a, an, an Italian filmmaker named Simeon Scafidi, who also directed a Fulci documentary called F for Fulci. Oh, okay. Um, this film is going to be streaming on Shutter on February second. So by the time this podcast comes out, it should be just about ready to premiere. If you are a Dario Argento sort of novice, I think this is going to be have a lot of value for sort of orienting yourself. Like, say you've seen one movie, say you've seen Zesperia, and that's all you've seen. This, I think, will orient you more about his career and what we know about him. For people like yourself, Josh, who have seen literally everything he's ever made <laughs> and have become kind of like experts on him, I'm not sure you're going to get a ton of value out of this. There's a lot of interviews the tone is generally reverential. There is some awkwardness when it becomes clear that we're sort of glossing over his later films, which aren't, to say the least, aren't as well regarded as his earlier work. The biographic stuff is interesting, especially early on. I didn't know a lot about his childhood or his family, so that that I at least learned something as a as a viewer. Interviews with pretty much everybody who's important. I think the best parts are the interviews. So they have it being Shutter, and they have lined up a pretty good murderous row of genre directors who to sort of talk about Argento in the context of their own work and their own film. So I think it's maybe worth it. If you're a cinephile, it's 90 minutes long. It's a, it's a short documentary. It's loosely framed around the idea that Argento is going to do what he usually does when he's writing a film, which is he retreats to a hotel and sort of writes in isolation. But of course he's not in isolation because there's a freaking movie crew standing there filming him pretty much the whole time. Very cool. That's streaming February 2nd on shutter. Mm -hmm. I'll be there. But in the meantime, we've got some business to take care of. We're going to follow a cop undercover. Doesn't, who doesn't play by the rules. Gang. Yeah, because he's stone cold. But more importantly, we've got stone cold iron here. Catherine cold iron. Great essayist, critic, just all around wonderful writer. Right around the corner with her pet. Our, our new program, Critics Are Stupid. <laughs> They basically say that I lack the ability to get along with others. So just to prove these people wrong, I decided to join a very exclusive and private club. Oh yes, it's very plush. And the membership? Very select. And games. We play some games. We are on to a new program. It's called Critics Are Stupid. Because we're stupid. Andrew, you thought of the title. You think the whole concept was on you, right? Is it? Was it? <laughs> don't, no, don't play with me. <laughs> we're not that stupid. Yes. Yeah. But I was immediately like, yes, can we please? Because it gives us the opportunity to pick some films that we think are underrated. Maybe we can even talk about what the reassessment period is like for some of these but these are like passion picks for us mm -hmm. and for our guests, of which we've got. Catherine Coldiron is back from the Deliverance episode. That Catherine Coldiron. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Josh. Hi, everyone. And Hi. my my interests are not solely <laughs> rapes in the woods. I have other interests. <laughs> 
No, there were so many. There were, we had a, like a month long conversation about this. There's just a lot on the table for this, but we will get into her pick. That is Stone Cold, a film that I'll be honest, I'd never even fucking heard of. Really? Uh, no, I had no idea. And I guess it is, it, it is a pretty big cult film. This, you know, football player star vehicle. And he's acted pretty much ever since. Yeah. You know, not in like high profile. Films, yeah, no, not but... well, but he has worked ever since well, Stone Cold. We will get into it. I like him in this movie. We will get into it. But uh, Catherine, I mean this in the in the best possible sense. You are like the patron saint of believing critics are stupid. And I let me say, am. yeah, you you wrote the book about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't go that far. Like, yes, but you're right about that. <laughs> I am. The book I'm referencing is Junk Film. You can order a copy at uh, kcoldiron.com, which I did on the episode last time. And you wrote a very sweet in inscription in it. And I... I appreciate it. I treasure it. Also, ceremonials. You wrote a mimeograph on Plan 9 from Outer Space and what the managing editor of X-Ray. Like, just a little bit of Catherine Coldiron out in the world everywhere. A little bit, yes. Actually, since, since you've said it, I will plug that this year I have a new book called Wire Mothers that is a collection of short stories. And I'm trying to put together an anthology of millennial writing about poltergeist to which Andrew has contributed the longest essay known to man. And I say that it's, it's wonderful. It's an exceptional essay and we're going to try and make it kind of the centerpiece of the anthology, but we'll be accepting, even though the website says we're closed, we're actually going to be accepting submissions uh, through the end of February. So check out poltergeistanthology.com if you want to contribute to that. Very cool. And I'm, I'm I haven't read it yet. Uh, I'll read it when it's, you know, out in the wild and everything. And <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Andrew writing the longest thing known to man. Who, who would have guessed it? Who I'm joking. It? My, my essay for a Tarantino anthology that hasn't come out yet is about as long as Andrew's essay for the poltergeist anthology. But yeah, I, I think his is maybe better. And here I thought that it was too short. <laughs> <laughs> only you, only you. No, it just goes to prove that these two critics are not stupid. Someday, you know, I'll write something that long and we'll be able to read it. All right. Okay. So the idea, Andrew, will you break down the idea for this program? Yeah. So I, I can't honestly remember what the genesis of this was. It just sort of came to me that we should do a series about films that were poorly regarded at the time of their release. And the metric, the sort of unofficial official metric that I floated was that the films had to be rated less than 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Rotten Tomatoes, which is already kind of like a high biased site in my mind. It's not a very textured yeah, metric. Pass fail, right? Yeah. So like if it's below 50%, it's pretty much regarded as a dog. And, but that doesn't really mean anything, right? Like I think we're all mature enough critics that we can recognize that Rotten Tomatoes is useful sometimes, but it doesn't really mean anything. It 
it's and particularly with films that have a little bit longer to sit that have had 10 20 30 or more years there's often a reassessment we've seen lots of films all of us can name films that have sort of were bombs or poorly regarded at the time that then turned around but i'm interested in the personal angle too so one of the reasons i wanted everybody to sort of pick a personal favorite was something that they could talk enthusiastically about why the critics are wrong what is great about this or that film and Catherine followed suit. This, okay, so I don't think this film has really received a critical reassessment. As I sort of doing some research, looking at it, like there's a How Did This Get Made episode on it. It's like capital B M. Oh God, I don't mean to say that. Bad movie. <laughs> fitting, fitting, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so I like it quite a bit. So, Catherine, will you explain why this film in particular? Like I said, you write a lot uh, in junk film. It's about quote-unquote bad movies, the BMs, if you will. I love that essay on Curtis Harrington's Ruby, and because you bring my guy into it a little bit, and it's about Piper Laurie's huge performance in that movie, but also about you know, you get, get into Curtis Harrington, who is like the queer patron saint of critics are stupid. Yeah. Of yeah, yeah. yeah. So so why Stone Cold? Because we bandied about a lot of films. Yes. Well, a lot of the films that I was considering were movies that I thought had been maligned, which I think is kind of was Andrew's idea for this was, you know, like we talked about Sucker Punch, which I think is a movie that people have largely misunderstood. And I wanted to bring in Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2, which I think is a hugely fun time. And why the hell is it ranked so like, come on. But this movie, I would not disagree that it's a bad movie. I mean, I think this is a bad movie. But when I think about why we go to the movies and what we enjoy about movies. I really can't consider this a bad movie. And it makes me wonder what the point of a critical assessment is. If it's going to tell viewers not to see a movie like this, which is so enjoyable. And so that's, that's kind of the reason that I wanted to pick this was to actually make us ask existential questions about the purpose of criticism and the purpose of movie reviews. And, you know, if this movie is reviewed badly, why the hell do we go to the movies? So to me, you hit the nail on the head is that it is, you know, the Sontagian idea of the pleasure of it. And the thing that I really responded to in this film, in the the middle of it, I turned to my boyfriend and said, this is like if Russ Meyer made films with men as the protagonists. Everyone, every single character in this film is relishing every moment. Oh my it's gosh, that they yes. are living inside whatever despicable, terrible thing, and they have the most gleeful smiles about it. And the direction, which is, so there was an original director who got fired or quit, or there's just tumultuous backstory on this film. And a transition to Craig R. Baxley, who is the credited director, who's a stunt person. Just like a long <laughs> storied history working with great directors doing a lot of great stunts. 
And yeah, you but can and no, you can tell. And until the John Wick movies, stuntmen did not have a great record in terms no. of being directors. No, no, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, the the stuntman is always like he becomes for Tarantino a serial killer for Winding Refn like your badass mute or whatever it is, you know. So this director, you can really see that he's like. Uh, you know, I am not going to miss my shot. <laughs> he made a oh, film yeah. um, called Action Jackson before this oh, that I've never seen. It's a like VHS cover to me. You know what I mean? Of like the horror movie Popcorn. Just like the cover just sticks in my mind. Sorry, Carl Weathers, early Sharon Stone film. I am immediately going to watch that. I've not seen it because I was so impressed with what Baxley was doing in this. Think about this there's like a half a second shot where uh, a camera is mounted on to the bottom of a guitar. And talking about not wanting to miss your shot, I mean, do you know what it takes to mount a camera to the bottom of a guitar? To in 1991. In 1991. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. I mean, I, I just watched Ambulance, which I loved. And one of the great things about Ambulance is like, it's clear that Michael Bay was like, I'm just going to put a camera on a drone. I can blow it up. It's fine. It's not like it's a $2 million camera. Like it's just a camera on a drone. I'm going to destroy a bunch of cameras. So, and I love that everything in this movie is made of C4. So it all explodes like <laughs> at the, at the touch of a, like, it's great. And that's, that's why, yeah, the stuntman connection makes so much more sense now that I know that. But yeah, I mean, the, the, this movie is wildly entertaining and I have watched it a jillion times and I'm not tired of it. And that's like, I know that there's Antonioni. I know that there's Bergman. I know that art exists in cinema, <laughs> but why do we go to the movies if not for juice bombs like this? Well, I think it, everything can coexist, right? It's that those things are so venerated and that the directors that we're talking about who have the kind of gusto to do something so adventurous and so wild and have a, a very distinct style are not. It's that they become like the way people appreciate them is that we call them vulgar auteurs and, and, and all that. But yes, I, I agree. I found this film very enjoyable. I, I will say the back half when things weren't exploding, dragged a bit for me. So I'm not going to say it's like a masterpiece, a trashter piece, if you will, but I, I did find it very enjoyable and probably even more so than the people I watched it with. I mean, I was, I was like cackling during this entire thing. And to me, that kind of pleasure is of the same value of the, the kind of thought and the other kinds of pleasure the stimulation that happens in something like persona or hey Zabriskie point has a lot of things exploding up. well <laughs> I just I felt like that was a particularly useful question when talking about criticism and the role of criticism mm -hmm. which is why I wanted to bring this one in Andrew yeah. did you hate the movie because you haven't it, said anything <laughs> I feel like he hated it I'm so no scared. I'm not trying to step on I'm just not trying to step on Josh's enthusiasm that's all no I liked it I have a memory that I may have seen this before so unlike Josh, I'm well aware of this movie, of its role in sort of catapulting Brian Bosworth out of his stymied 
football career into a questionable movie stardom uh, that never really subsequently went anywhere. I do remember it sort of being a video store VHS box staple for a while. I feel like I've seen it, in particular the climax of the film, where the bikers attack the what I think is supposed to be the Mississippi Supreme Court, but is very clearly a Capitol building and is not, in fact, the Mississippi Capitol building, but the Arkansas Capitol building. I have memory, I have vivid memories of that. So I'm sure, if nothing else, I must have clicked over to a 3 a.m. Showtime screening of this at some point <laughs> in my youth and caught the back half because Lance Henriksen and the priest get up and the massacre at the at the Supreme Court building all seem bit rang, rung some memory bell for me but it's been a long time and I, I i didn't remember the front half of it at all so but yeah i mean i get what you guys are saying exactly i do think it's a bad movie but i was sitting there pausing it every five minutes and writing something down going oh my god i can't believe this is happening <laughs> so i guess that's a good you know is that a good metric for a good movie or not i do want to get back i do think that question you're asking is really valid Catherine. i think it's worth talking about like i really like the way you put it which is that if a critic dissuades someone from seeing this film, how can they in good conscience say that they love cinema? Maybe is that, is that I would couch yeah, it that perfectly and, said. And my response to that would be, that's a really good question because I think something that has happened, and I don't know if this is a new phenomenon, I don't have a good enough historical perspective, but it feels like for a lot of people, both critics and lay readers of critics, the function of criticism is is an Amazon review. It's to tell me whether it's worth my time and money to go experience this thing. And that's it. That It's a buy, not buy, rent, not rent, stream, not stream question. And of course, I think, I don't think I'm presuming to say that we would all say that there's a lot more to being a critic than that. But if that's your narrow view of criticism, I don't know. Like I, I just I mean, personally can't, I personally can't accept that as, as my role as a critic. My critic is not to tell people, don't go see this or go see this. It's to explain why something is pleasurable or not pleasurable or yeah. interesting or not interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, so I've kind of, especially because I work uh, much more in book criticism than I do in movie. Like <clears throat> I think of myself as a critic in the sense that I write criticism, but film critic means a thumbs up or thumbs down. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really into that. Like, I, I think that there's two levels of criticism. There's one that you're right, it's an Amazon review. And then there's another that's like, we write 3000 word essays about an auteur's movement from this to that. And the those two levels each have purposes. And I'm not gonna like shit on the people who review movies, but I am gonna say, if you find yourself negatively reviewing a movie that is as entertaining as this one, then you have to ask what the purpose of your job is. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I think the the person, like, I, I remember when I found out that there's there was a, I don't know if this, she's still working, but she did like a mom at the movies column where it was like, do you go and take your family to this movie? And she was able to tell you. And I feel like that is an incredibly useful role. And I would never say that that shouldn't exist in favor of only Sontag type of criticism. Um, but I think that there's room for thoughtful exploration of cinema as well, which is it's, the whole point of Cahir and that whole movement a million years yeah, ago. Well, that's where I want to get. That's what they were doing is talking about what is the value of cinema? What, if we can't recognize 
the construction and the consistent thematization of ideas in the most popular director, Hitchcock. That's the big kind of hiatus cinema guy, right? If we can't recognize that, and if if we as critics don't take that as a policy, as our our political viewpoint, what are we doing? So they're building in ideas of you know like content ideas about beauty mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and and all of this stuff into their film criticism instead of you know what bosley crowler was doing at the the new york times and doing kind of up down like theater don't go or go because you're mm-hmm. spending well then nickel a quarter whatever it was that's right, the right. kind of thing it's like to whereas i think about a few episodes ago we talked about John Woo's new film, latest film, Silent Night. Which, which I haven't it, seen, but it looked like a banger when I saw the trailer. I was like, oh yeah, totally. Dude, you have got to watch it because it does remind me a little bit of Stone Cold. It, politically wonky, getting into territory that I don't think John Woo should get into. He's done that kind of thing before. And it's like, oh, well, that's what you but this is like a high concept movie. Mm-hmm. It's a silent revenge film directed by one of the great actioners ever. Like, yes, please put it as big as possible into my eyeballs. Is that a good movie? I had a pleasurable experience with it. Thumbs the fuck up. Go watch yeah. it. Yeah. With, you know, reservations. It's not like my one of the great films to me because it doesn't it doesn't have the kind of like mind explosion that happens with the films that i absolutely love Mm -hmm. anyway but yeah i mean this is this is a conversation that i wanted to have when i picked stone cold (laughs) because (laughs) i do i do feel that there's and, and part of one of the things that i have to acknowledge is that what godard and Truffaut were reacting against was a world that doesn't see film as serious art. And it was fun to kind of watch that start to exist with video games in the early 20th Mm -hmm. century, how there was at first there was just thumbs up or thumbs down for video games. And then people started writing criticism and it was like one or two dudes at first, and then it started to grow. And it's, it's, it's cool to watch new art forms develop their own sets of critical tropes or typicality value yeah yeah i mean that's that's fun and it's great but it also shouldn't keep us from remembering that cinema can be a pure pleasure and not just something to talk about in a in a book (laughs) (laughs) written written by me (laughs) yeah she says having written several of them (laughs) yeah so So, let's break down stone cold let's get into the the very raw meat of stone cold the beef of it stone cold all right catherine you pick this thing what what is happening in this other than before you go sorry i have to say that this is one of the films it's like it is like watching russ meyer to me there's so much plot there's things happening i can't tell you what's happening in this because 
what else is happening are all the pleasurable things. Yeah. Like I am vibing on a different level with this other than that. I think he goes undercover with a Nazi bike gang. <laughs> Tell me if I'm wrong. No, you're right. And I mean, so the first thing that I want to say about this movie, even before I do a plot summary is my husband tells me that this was seriously his actual haircut. Oh yeah. Yeah. Josh, the face you're making. So oh, I, I forgot just wanna... we're on a podcast. <laughs> Roots and all. Yeah. Like, I, I just want to point that for anyone who who rushes out to watch Stone Cold, and I recommend that you do just know that going in that this was his real hair, because it was it was 1990, baby. 1990 was the craziest damn year. All right. So <clears throat> there's Wait, this. But this is not an hold on. This is not an easy haircut. No. Like, this is something that you have to you're getting up early mm -hmm. to do this hair. You it's are kind of like pompadour like mullet pompadour but like shaved mohawk. on the sides oh. with with bleaching like it's it is a complicated haircut that is not yeah i, I mean it's something we're gonna get into <laughs> the like queer values of this film oh yeah too. yeah I, that's... I got a few things to say all right that sorry. exists Okay, so the I'll try and keep this bare bones and we can expand on it. So there's a cop in Alabama named Joe Huff, who looks amazingly like a linebacker, who is he's been suspended from the police force. And in order to get unsuspended, he works with the FBI to bring down a biker gang that is in, I'm going to say Mississippi. It's not clear what parts of this take place in Mississippi and what parts take place in Alabama. Cause there's a part late in the movie where Sam McMurray is like, you're suddenly out of your jurisdiction. And like, first of all, you're working with the FBI. So that's not possible. <laughs> and so, okay. So he, he infiltrates this biker gang because apparently he's the policeman who is capable of infiltrating a biker gang and he's very inconspicuous. So that's reasonable. And he goes to this big rally. He infiltrates into the, you know, makes himself a part of this gang led by chains played by Lance Hendrickson, who is acting in an entirely different movie than the one that a is great movie. <laughs> yes. A very great, very joyful, perhaps children's movie as this insane biker movie is going on around him like lenny reifenstahl children's movie <laughs> <laughs> no i just mean he's always like smiling and laughing and oh his, like, uh, that, that's what i'm talking about with the glee with which everyone does everything in this he's just he's so, having a fun time being a complete he, psychopath I mean. he really is you know live laugh love says lance hendrickson and so he discovers the cop joe huff goes undercover as john stone very again very inconspicuous and gets the biker gang to trust him such that when they do a big drug deal with this drug called p2p which looks suspiciously like water it's meth i mean yeah but p2p, P2P, P2P is a real drug it's, it's a form of meth oh really oh. i thought it was I thought no it was, it's not like that I thought it was like drug. minority <laughs> reports like nar whatever they're doing in it i thought it was just like this fake drug that this no it's, made it's up. some kind of i don't know i'm not enough of a chemist to, to, to understand the details but my understanding is that it's a, it's just a powerful form of methamphetamine with a particularly rich proportion of like the street valued isomers that make it very powerful it would have been coming so it's actually a very timely movie in that respect because it would have been sort of coming out at this point in history and becoming a thing oh that's so funny also Andrew's st louis drug dealers he's, this is your he's, man 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Andrew's a scientist. I'm just clarifying for everyone. He's not a drug dealer. That is why he knows these things. He's not no, as opposed to as, as opposed to the you know the neon goop called Nuke in Robocop Two, which I, <laughs> I don't think is a real. Thing. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, this this is just tubes of water. In the movie. don't smell it though. Don't smell it. <laughs> nope. And it turns out that the bikers and the mob, as much as the the mob operates in the deep south, question mark, are are getting together to work out this drug deal and the cop is hoping to somehow sting the mob and the bikers in one shot. Meanwhile, the bikers are very unhappy because one of their own has been targeted by a district attorney named Whip Whipperton. And Ooh, can you tell I've seen this Whipperton. movie 80 jillion times? Whip like Whipperton. Incredible. Yes. And in order to, like, I guess, hit back at this unfair political victimization, the bikers have decided to assassinate Whip as well as the entire state Supreme Court. The deal goes wrong. The, the FBI and the cops do not successfully arrest the entire mafia and the bikers. The bikers plan goes through. They do assassinate the Whip and the entire Supreme Court. But somehow, somehow stone triumphs he gets his potential inside woman killed killed like straight up <laughs> shot between the eyes he's killed. not a good cop he's no i i have to be honest i wish you hadn't explained all that because <laughs> now i think it might be a bad movie oh no it's 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 a good bad movie we, <laughs> we talked for a minute about the Utterly insane understanding of the like criminal law, criminal justice system. You mean how anything works? <laughs> yeah. Well, how the whip is like, I'm going to appeal this until I get the death sentence for this biker, right. which makes no, no. sense. And the Supreme, not... Court, the Supreme Court, Supreme Court to be hands down death penalty sentences now, right. apparently. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, all this happens in the space of like a month, like because we know because we know that like capital cases notoriously move quickly through the judicial system. <laughs> of how they get him involved in the first place by quote unquote blackmailing him because he'll be on suspension for longer, something like that weeks. they actually can't do. I'm like. This this isn't how this works. Now wait a minute. I did I did like that because there's that moment where they say we'll lift your suspension, and he very smartly says, "No, I've got three weeks. I could I can do three weeks." Yeah. They say, "Well, yeah, it's six months like, now." Weeks, oh, okay. Well, I guess I'll go along with it. Yeah. In my well, brain, I was like, three weeks. That's nothing." Three I know. Weeks. So I, I mean, I don't know if you guys just for the audience, Stone Cold is not easy to find so my recommendation is that you buy the riff tracks of it because that's $11 and it's very easy to get and it's also I don't the think also on prime I'll say that for, oh good for streamable yeah good good so but and it doesn't take away from the experience of watching the movie to watch the riff tracks of it but like one of the things that happens is very early on they point out that this is the same dynamic as a misbehaving kid in a frat like <laughs> Take that, Dean. Like, it's it's the same thing of like, now you've got six months off campus. Triple secret Don't. formation. Yeah. Can I get, dude, in, I have not watched the Rift Tracks. I'm going to have to have some space to watch the Rift Tracks again. I want to sit with my own experience with it. <laughs> but 
if I'm wondering if this comes up in any of the writing or, you know, oral histories, are they, are they reusing sets from Roadhouse? I'm, I'm so serious. The, the lake house, is that not Ben Gazzara's house in Roadhouse? The actual like Roadhouse, is that not just remade Roadhouse? Like, I'm so serious. I watched this thing and I'm like, as it starts, oh, I know what kind of vibe I am in, what kind of world I'm living in. Yes, This yep. is like, to whereas I think Roadhouse is probably, not probably, is a better film. And, but I'm watching this, I'm like, not only does it live in the world of Roadhouse, it literally lives in the world of Roadhouse. It's true. They do seem to take place in the same cinematic universe. Although this this one is more violent, I would say. Oh, um, absolutely. Well, Roadhouse is like, well, you know, how people write about Tarantino's violence. No, that's an actual Looney Tune is Roadhouse. <laughs> this one, this one is like guttural. It's like the violence in here is nasty. In stark opposition to everyone else in this. Like, these are hot gay dudes. Like, you don't understand that. Maybe you do. You guys do. The standards in my world are very different. I'm watching this thing. I'm like, oh, my God. They're all so beautiful. They are just like, this is like walking into a leather bar. I, I mean, it is. I love yes. Lance's top, the the the, the chainmail shirt that he wears. Oh, yeah. it's so good. It's and like a lightweight. He wears it so many times too. I'm like, and a, I know. And a leather do rag, apparently. <laughs> you know, it smells so bad. <laughs> I love Lance's whole like. So there's this trashy compound, right? Like this this like place mm. that the I get the impression the Brotherhood. Apparently the Brotherhood own real estate. They have this whole like fenced in compound with razor wire and guards. They're squatting on real estate, but yes. And like they have, they have families there. Everything's going on. It's all kind of trashy and and low, low rent, right? Except one, the Brotherhood leadership has a very nice office conference room that they meet in (laughs) with a good (laughs) audio visual setup. And Chains has this magnificent 1990 vintage, like, bohemian he's got candles he's got gauzy he's got curtains eight thousand candles no but yeah i mean i i i have to like i have to agree with you that the homoerotic stuff is there and what's the line what oh, we're willing forsyth on. calls him honey i found the line you gonna use that stick or you want to dance with me <laughs> now he didn't say it like that that's how i heard it the dialogue in this film is next level I will say that. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I know, I don't think we can go any further without me telling you my favorite line of dialogue in this movie and possibly ever when Jane says about stone, this is either going to be the biggest pork chop I ever ate or my bulldozer. <laughs> what and does that mean? What so does that mean? Matt, my husband and I watched this movie by itself. And then a few years later, the riff came out. And one of the great things about the riff from Riff Tracks is that it says stuff about the movie that we had previously been like, what the hell? And like one of them is is Guts, like attachment to Stone, how he's just like, yeah, Stone, like all the time, that, that little biker. Yeah, he's so sweet, but also, yeah, it's really weird. But that line, they're like, wait, is that good? Wait, is that good? Like, what? 
what does that mean? And so after many watchings, <laughs> I have determined that the pork chop is good and the bulldozer is bad. I thought it was the right. other way around. No, 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 no. I agree. Because think about it, like consuming the pork chop. He's just calling him like a piece of meat, a pig, yes. and I'm going to eat you. Delicious. Or I'm going to use you, beef, to just bulldoze anything that comes in my way. Oh, okay. Is Both are me good. thinking about it too much. More than Lance <laughs> Emerson thought about it, I'm sure. So... Something, it so beautifully. something we have to say is that what I read was originally Chain's dialogue was all biblical quotes. And Lance Hendrickson said absolutely not and wrote all of his dialogue himself. And you can you can definitely tell. Oh, I hope that's true. <laughs> I hope it's so true too. Because that, like, that specific line, which, like, I hope every movie theater stopped the reel so that <laughs> people could recover from it. It's, it is really that good. And it's, it's these tortured, these tortured metaphors and idioms about angels and devil. Like, yeah, I'm just sitting there with my mouth open going, Lance, he's, a, well, I mean, he's a legend. I love it. Man. He's a legend. There's a reason oh, yeah. that. Speaking of John Woo, there's a reason that he's like 50% of the reason that Hard Target is so good. Him kind of doing a similar, completely off the rails villain. Right. Yeah. Lance Henriksen is actually always good. Like, I will stand by that. Yeah. I can't. And even when he's in more serious fare, and it's all, almost always genre fare, he can play that tone too. But he really knows how to work well within this. Mm -hmm. I, I the way IMDB has this line I just sent in the chat is chains colon it's better to be first in hell than last in heaven brackets shoots to national guardsmen. Mm -hmm. But he puts them in boxes before he shoots them, which is a confusing thing. To, like he nails yeah. them into these crates, which is very labor intensive. And you would think that the guys would maybe put up a fight while he's doing that, but no. Mm. I thought for sure that those guys were going in the swamp and we're going to get eaten by alligators. Like that felt like a kind of that's goofy bad guy thing to do. But no, yeah. he just shoots them and they fall. But then he mails them to the whip, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. as a as a kind of symbol of, yes, we're willing to nail dudes into crates. And it's so fun. I love this movie so much. The, the way that I feel like there's a semblance of a typical Hollywood bad movie character underneath Lance because at the end the way that he dresses up as a priest and some of the stuff that he says in that that feels like it's cliche ridden bad guy but the rest of the part is so off the rails like it's not it's not common for bad movies to have villains like this and to have the performance of it the performance is good don't tell me my boyfriend don't tell me that he's bad. I'm like, do not understand movies. Do not know what he's downstairs. He's downstairs. <laughs> I don't want him to hear this because he listens as I'm recording. He's like, that's not like a good one. I'm like, you only heard me. Anyway, everyone is doing a thing in here. I think there are actual bad performances. I don't think the boss is one of them. I think he's so good in this because he has... He fits well within the style of like 
stilted machismo, but it's very clear that there's vanity there. It's it it works so well within this world. And I, I don't want to keep bringing it back to like the one like huge exploitation touch point I have in my head because I love him so much. But it does remind me of the stylization of Russ Meyer and the the consistent stylization of performance that you know that there's someone in control of this who knows what they're doing, has a vision of it, and, and knows how to communicate that to an actor. And I think the similar thing is happening here. A lot of it is kind of maybe being absorbed via osmosis from Lance Henriksen because he is... He's so good in this. But William Forsyth is kind of doing his William Forsyth thing as it would become. I just, I think it, yeah, the the performances work so well. And, you know, taking it back to Roadhouse, it's the same idea in there. Like, are those good performances? I mean, maybe Patrick Swayze is doing a good performance of what a, a, a film critic might call good, which... If we can take it to like how people define good. So when I was when I was writing my book, <clears throat> the the first thing that a mentor said to me when he read the introduction was like, you're going to have to define good and bad. And mm-hmm. I'm like, because that's way too hard. And people have been trying to define good and bad for centuries. Philosophers, aesthetics, aestheticians, various people who who are experts in this kind of thing. And I, th- I think about this a lot when I think about William Shatner, because is he a good actor? I don't know. I, I don't, th- I think that whatever he's doing, it is a consistent thing that mm-hmm. exists in the world that could be defined as acting, but is not, is not good in the way that we think of good when we think of like De Niro or Streep or, you know, the greats. But Shatner is unique. And to me, that puts him in a realm of art, even if it's not typical. So because of that, like when I think about Ben Gazzara in Roadhouse, is his performance good? I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. Patrick Swayze is giving a performance that's more traditionally good. And uh, Kelly... Kelly Lynch. Thank you, Kelly. I never remember which Kelly is in this movie. Kelly Lynch is giving a performance that's more typically bad. But what Ben Gazzara is doing, the same as what Piper Laurie is doing in Ruby. It's it's appropriate. It's over the top. Mm-hmm. Is it good? I don't know. That one's a little slippery too, because I think Ben, I would say that Ben Gazzara is a guy who is capable of giving traditionally good performances in some fil- in some of his films, but not in Roadhouse. He's doing something else in Roadhouse. Mm. He's making that's... a choice. Maybe that's, the, that's a sign of the intelligence of the performance is that he's making a choice. He said, I'm not going to do this like I did yeah. Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I'm going to do this like X, Y, Z. No, Henriksen too yeah. in, in this movie is doing the yeah. exact same thing. That, that's, it's all relative. Acting has morphed and changed as technology, as the art forms have changed. It's all relative to the material the form that it takes it's like a cultural relative point is good or bad and i how many times have you gone to like a repertory screening and the audience came prepared to laugh they don't necessarily understand style or the culture of the time and therefore what they know is the parody of the thing 
and how this has been codified into comedy. So they know the hallmarks, they know the touch points. So they think I'm going into an old movie. Uh, the way I can have a good time with this is to laugh. This film, I think, it appro appropriately so says laugh at me, which is such a kind of freeing experience because it's, it is self-aware to the point that it is stupid. And I can tell because the director, where he puts the camera, how he chooses movement with the, the, the Maison that he creates in this is so dialed up. I feel like I'm giving a speech right now, but I feel no, really passionate, passionately about quote unquote, like bad movies that have this kind of distinct style and artistic movement within them. That's so interesting because I was gonna, I was gonna contradict you a little earlier about Russ Meyer, whom I, I love, I love Russ Meyer. But part of the reason I love Russ Meyer is that he has an incredibly distinct style and especially an editing style mm. and unusual places to put the camera, which is not true for a lot of exploitation film. Like a lot of exploitation films, pretty, pretty boring. And adult. In terms of, yeah. In terms of choices, directorial choices. And this movie felt much more like a traffic cop movie than it did a Russ Meyer movie to me because Russ Meyer creates dynamism with film craft as opposed to what's happening in the frame. And I just don't, I never thought of Stone Cold that way. Part of it is that I'm so distracted by the content of the movie that I'm barely even noticing if there is film craft. So I'm going to take your word for it. I do think that any movie that gives someone a monitor lizard as a pet is teaching you that this is not a serious movie. Yeah. Uh, That's a great <laughs> point. Like, is that even legal, folks? No, that's a dangerous animal. <laughs> that's what I thought. But he's treating it like I treat my cats. <laughs> I, I love how he tries to hide it, too, over like a robe or something. It's just crawling out. I think, you know, to the to the Meyer point, I think I think you're right. This one is kind of so propulsive in its bullshit that a lot of that filmmaking does go by stealthily because Meyer he's he's calling it out like oh yeah he's, he's a show like, off yeah he's a total show off to where he's editing out people blinking so he's cutting on blinks because that's not his aesthetic like that man is so fussy it i will say as, i will say as somebody who's essentially seeing this for the first time at least seeing it with adult eyes for the first time i did i do think it's formally I don't want to say accomplished, but it's it, formally it's pretty solid. There's a lot of really great lighting in this movie. There's a lot of interesting, like as we might expect with a stunt stuntman direct former stuntman director. There's a lot of good action coherence. Oh yeah, um, in terms of the editing, mm -hmm. like it 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 feels formally. If you're flicking through it on any given Saturday afternoon on your local UHF station in 1993, <laughs> maybe it wouldn't cause you to stop and go, whoa. But I think, like, I guess it's more formally accomplished than I was expecting going in. I expected it to be very, like you say, ex sort of exploitation blah. And it, it's a, it feels a little more accomplished than that in my mind. My mind, Especially in the first half, I feel like there's a lot of really excellent lighting in, in uh, the, the bars and the interiors and so forth. Mm -hmm. There's yeah, a mean, lot of intention in mm -hmm. it that is, it is surprising. But I also found it 
really thrilling. So I'm specifically the the first time Stone goes to the beach and he's got to kind of prove himself. But Catherine, don't look at me like that. No, I'm You're smiling. Like, Joshua, I know you like that part. No, no, I'm, I, no, no, no. The reason I was smiling was not just because there's a lot of shirtless dudes in that scene, but also because this the scene where he fights with the guy who's clearly some kind of semi-professional wrestler, yep. that guy has the beatific smile of Jesus. And I he don't understand. He, well, he is too, but he's also just like smiling and smiling and smiling as he's dealing Blood. like- that knee to the lower back thing. He's just like, love for all my children. <laughs> like it's, right. it's it's another one of those sort of, what is this performance doing? And the fact that it makes no sense is like in the context of the movie, like he should be angry and growling, of course. But that's what makes this movie so special instead of just being exploitation blah, is that there, there are these, these choices that make you just go, what? Why? Yeah, I mean, a Nazi, a neo-Nazi biker encampment should not be a place of this kind of enjoyment. Like, if if we're going to do the gritty, realistic exploitation version of this, you know, a guy who's trying to make, yeah, 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 since uh, since that's on our mind, um, you know, it's a horrible, horrible place full of horrible people doing horrible things. There's nothing comforting or fun about it. But this movie takes place in movie reality. Right. It's it, mm -hmm. it, it's taking place in this. And it's interesting that they don't sand off like the swastikas and story and stormtrooper SSs, But there's also this there's weirdly of it. There's this weirdly heightened sense of, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want this to come off glib when I'm talking about the neo-Nazi bikers. But there's almost this like carnivalesque feeling to the way that the outdoor sequences in the compound are staged and, and presented. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Music festival ish. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. there's lots of there's 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 tits, there's guns, there's yeah. They put William Forsyth on his bike, prop him up with a cigar in his mouth, and burn him like a Viking funeral. I mean, come on. After he dies, to be clear. after he dies, that's something something. <laughs> there's yeah. something there, right? I, I wasn't sure if we needed to address the Nazi imagery and the Confederate imagery because to me it is. And like, I don't want to, I don't want to lessen any of this. I don't want to excuse any of it, but that imagery feels much more like costuming to yep. set out a certain set of symbols and to align these people, not just with bad people, but specifically with bad white supremacist bikers, which do exist. And it's not as if I'm saying, oh, these are just pussycats who are wearing SS symbols. No, they're clearly dangerous people, but it's not a movie that worries or traffics in or thinks about anti-Semitism or actual Nazism in any way. It's just kind of like that these are these are costumes. Yeah. And this is this is something that would happen for decades. I don't know that that's really kind of happening anymore, but it it was a thing, y'all. It's, oh, yeah. it it's worth lot. remembering it's worth remembering that this is a, a couple of years before Oklahoma City. So before yeah. the idea of right wing white supremacist militantism became, sort of came crashing, literally crashing back to the front of everybody's consciousness as a thing that we have in America. So this is sort of, I don't, again, not to excuse it, but this sort of happens, this is a film from those days, before before those days, but from yeah. that sort of night, I mean, this is even pre-LA riots. That would have been 92, right? So yeah. 
while I was watching this, so I don't want to get too serious. So while I was watching this, Catherine, I had a thought popped in my head. So this movie is dated 91, Mm -hmm. right? This is the last 1980s action movie. Even though it came out in 1991, there's some there's a there is a 90s kind of action movie that I think most people have in their mm-hmm. heads, mm-hmm. and it's Speed, right? Then what is the a 1990s 1990- action movie? Is the Hong Kong 80s action movie? All of that style mm-hmm. disseminated into okay, Hollywood right. action filmmaking is like John Woo came over and Choi Hak came over, and and it was big, right? This is this isn't really an exploitation film. I mean, it's it's independently produced, but like Michael Douglas was a producer on this, and then was like, "Can you kindly take my name off?" Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So the like this is coming from, and it's meant to be a vehicle for someone who, I guess, was well known of football players. He was a flash in the pan, and it's actually interesting that this movie came out the same year as Cool as Ice which is Vanilla Ice's Flash in the Pan star vehicle. That's such an interesting proposition, Andrew. I admit that my my knowledge of action is not as strong. I'm thinking of it more like genre divisions. The way that I think of this movie is as a direct-to-video movie, especially a David Pryor direct-to-video action movie. Like that's I know that's a very specific subgenre, but there sure are a lot of films that qualify. And David Pryor was making movies like that well into the DVD age. So... I'm less inclined to put it into a decade as I am like, no, I know where this goes in the video store. (laughs) It's, it's very USA network before characters were welcome. There's something about the, there's something about the, the sort of adolescent over the top quality to the violence and the action in this film. And also in some ways the performances, but particularly the way that the action, the violence presented, we just, we don't just have, the mafia driving past the bikers who are horning in on their protection and prostitution racket and shooting them with a handgun. They throw a grenade. And that's a that's a 15-year-old's in 1990s note on this movie. Well, yes. why does he have to shoot him? Couldn't he throw a grenade? Yeah, oh, why like the fuck not? Yeah. Because, in in broad daylight. Right. In, in the middle the of downtown Belashi? <laughs> question mark? I'm not sure yeah. about that. It could be in Pensacola. Who knows? Why um, would we? Why would we have a helicopter in our movie if we can't throw a motorcycle into it and have it explode? I mean, the logic of the film is the logic of a fifteen-year-old boy, and yes. I guess that's what I'm thinking. And what I'm thinking of there, there seems to be this is like somebody saw Commando and then like took three steps down and tried to follow the like both in terms of quality and budget and also in terms of like intellectual acumen in terms of design. I love your digs so much, Andrew. You're just, you're, and you're, such, a, you're a, such a bitch. It was it's really great. good. What makes this film enjoyable, if I can bring it back to your original point, Catherine, is that as I'm, these imp- these implausibilities are popping into my head as I'm watching them, I'm not going, this movie is shit and turning, grabbing the remote and turning it off. I'm just smiling from ear to ear going, what is happening here? This is amazing. <laughs> this movie is absurd and I love it. Yes. I, I, I will bring it back to the riff tracks. I promise this is the last time where at the beginning, one of the one of the first explosions, Kevin Murphy says, it's official. This is the greatest movie I have ever seen. And then at the end, when the motorcycle crashes into the helicopter and the whole thing explodes, he says, 
as I said, this is the greatest movie I have ever seen. And I, you know, I know he's not serious. I know he's, he's a, he's a film connoisseur. He knows from good movies, but like, how can you argue with that? A, a motorcycle just crashed into a helicopter. I, I love it. It is a sight to see. Anything else on Stone Cold? I feel really bad that Arabella Holzbog has the name she does because I feel she could have had a pretty decent little career, but it's such a bad name. Her character's death is so brutal in this movie. I thought so for sure brutal. they were fake. They were faking me out. Like me I'm like, too. wait, mm-hmm. did she die? Like she's dead, dead. Wait, what? I know it's such a bummer. And, but yeah, I, I just, every time I see this movie, I'm always like, oh, you know, I would have liked to see her in other stuff. Cause she's, pretty and she has pretty good chops my only other note i want to add i wrote i scribbled down here the most realistic part of this movie is that the nazi bikers have moles inside the local police department <laughs> <laughs> like you're chain, us on a list chains well, calls like his local contact i'm like oh wait this is a plot point that seems like somebody actually put some thought into it well and the thing CAB. i loved that his local contact is a cute girl because yeah. it made me wonder like is that a sugar daddy situation like what how are they connected to each other is she a neo-nazi and that's i don't know it's just it's it's so unlikely that she's the mole not some right. you know jarhead yeah dude. so this movie is hard to find as we mentioned it's available on amazon prime with the most lauded riff tracks but i i'm gonna check it out eventually there are like two blu-ray editions i think the kino lorber one is the newer one and that's, from what i the research i did is that it looks better that's the one it i have good. it looked it looked yeah. i watched it the kino on my 4k oled tv and it looked great so yeah a film that's just calling for it. i'm kidding all films call for it good <laughs> color i'm gonna say it again good color so, Catherine, I don't, I don't know that we've told you this, but for this series that we're doing, we're partnering with the Webster University film series, the, the long-standing great film series that we have here in St. Louis, to show the rest of the films. This film is very difficult to get the rights for, as it turns out. I know, I know. Um, Bummer. But, but this is a great way for us to announce it, too that let me break down the schedule and we'll talk about the the picks that everyone's made and Catherine, you're going to be returning for these two like i said patron state of this very topic so we have to have her for everything our next episode we will actually have pete timmerman the director of the webster university film series as our guest and he's picked harmony corinne's gabo so if you're in St. Louis, you could, I'll be there. It's Thursday, February 8th, 7 p.m. I might take some questions and then we answer them on the podcast as you're interested. And then my pick is the next one. That's Jonathan Demme's The Truth About Charlie. I think a lovely little movie, but that one is going to be February 22nd at 7 p.m. And finally, we're going for Andrew's pick, Earth. By Jonathan Glazer. That's February 29th, 7 p.m. And then subsequently, we'll have the podcast episodes up after that. So if you're local to St. Louis, come on down. We're going to have a good time. I don't know why I had to sing that, but I did. And so there that is. I do wish Catherine, I could be there. I wish you could be there too. Oh my God. 
we're gonna have to have a Catherine Cold Iron trip, but we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna have her back with the rest of the series. If she yes, like. the the second one I will be in Kansas City, so closer to y'all, but <sighs> I, I yeah, I'm not available. But the third and fourth, I I will be there with bells on. Sounds amazing. So and then on the second episode, we will have Pete Timmerman here. So I'm so excited for the series. And after this episode, even more excited. Catherine, surprise. Do you have one more thing? Do you have something you can talk about you've been enjoying for the past couple of weeks? Oh boy. So <laughs> I recently have been watching very extreme cinema. So the last explain the well, the last one I watched was come and see. Yeah, so, I see what you mean. Not recommended uh, per se. I a friend went and saw the zone of interest and he tweeted it with saw the zone of interest. And it was a far side cartoon with the, the not fun whatsoever house, which is I think a very good description of the kinds of movies I've been watching recently. I'm trying to, I'm trying to catch up on all my Haneke. So are you yeah. good? Are you good? <laughs> like I would not come and see and watching the house. Like, yeah. Yeah. Th that's the 2024 vibes right there. Well, I'm trying to get over a really bad 2023 and like getting all the bad shit out of the way in the Immersion first part therapy. of the year. Immersion therapy. Um, yes. Yeah. See, this um, is this is what I do when I'm feeling bad. Is I actually watch the bad stuff and it makes me feel better. I don't know why that is. The stuff uh -huh. that I watch when I'm when I'm feeling sad, like one of my comfort movies is Gone Girl, which <laughs> I know is not typically a comfort movie for me. Thank yeah. you, Josh. Yes. Absolutely comfort movie. Like uh, beyond comforting. I mean, Midsummer is another comfort. I mean, I think I'm just sick. Um, no, these are antidepressants is what they are. <laughs> I will say, here's here's an actual recommendation. A movie that I watch when I'm sad is Neil Breen's Fateful Findings. Because I am sad. The movie is so terrible that I'm comforted that I will never be as incompetent as this thing. That's like, that's, that's heady. That's like reverse imposter syndrome. What is that? Mm -hmm. That's what that is. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't make something this bad if I tried. Yes. Wait, yes. What's the name of it again? Fateful Findings. It is available to buy on Amazon. I'm sorry. It's so expensive. But if you buy the DVD, you have to buy it from Neil himself. And he does not, he doesn't come cheap. So Amazon's your best bet. Have you not heard of Neil Brain, Josh, that your face is like, really something need to read finish reading the book sorry no I don't, I don't why does it look like this um sorry you really just threw me into like a different world or something okay okay no i don't know anything about this and i'm so excited to discover it Thanks. sorry Take i didn't say that i am here the, the look Andrew, at your just face look it up like look at the cover no why i know what you're like no, I don't. Yeah, I don't I, Andrew knows about Neil Breen. Neil <laughs> yeah. Breen is is like, yeah, it's when I talk about bad movies, I try to kind of uh, cater my conversation to my audience. And like Neil Breen is like advanced level bad movies. Um, I'm down. I'm it's, down. It's, it's outsider art, basically. It is. I mean, kind of. Yes. He, unlike the director of After Last Season, he has seen movies and knows what they're like, but it doesn't mean he can make a good one. Thank you so much for that recommendation. I, I'm, <laughs> just the cover, like I just reset my body. Like you looked like it, you kind of you know went blue screen for a minute. Yeah, it broke me. Okay, well, where can people find other recommendations like that 
and all of your writing and everything that you're doing. Where can people find you online? Well, I'm, I took about six weeks off of Twitter and it really, I really should have kept on with that, but instead I'm back on Twitter and I've been tweeting mostly about movies lately. So as not to consider the horrors, I am at kcoldiron.com, but I'm really bad at updating that website. So it's not really, not really present. If you want a copy of my book that is signed, you can PayPal me $17 and I will send you a copy of junk film with a signature and some stickers. I will be in person at AWP in Kansas city in just about just over a week. And that's if, if you're going to AWP anyway, look for me. I'm also trying to kind of write more film essays on my medium account. I just wrote one about Lars von Trier and Ruben Oslund and kind of, yeah. So if you Google me, you will find my shit is basically what I should have said. That's the short version. <laughs> God, just Google her. Just look it up on Google. Andrew, I'm going to go next. Have either of you seen the new world picture, the Roger Corman produced film Galaxy of Terror? I heard that this it, was happening. It it was just put on Shutter like last week or something. It is an alien ripoff, but it's also got like a little spice of Zardoz, a, a oh. tiny bit of The Visitor, and like... I was actually kind of amazed at the level of horror in this film. <clears throat> if you so, if you mention Zardoz and The Visitor, you have my attention. Well, so most of it is very alien until this space crew. And let me tell you who's on the crew. Y'all aren't ready. I'm gonna, I'll start with who's like the kind of ostensible lead is Aaron Moran. Or Joni of Joni Loves Chachi of Happy Days. Okay, but it gets it gets better. And she's good. She's fine in it. Ray Walston. My favorite. Huh? Yeah. Exactly. Party with Ray Walston. Robert England. Who? Robert England's Sid Haig. Oh, God. Zalman King of Red Shoe Diaries. Right. But here's... Here's the thing, y'all. This is a very early performance from Grace Zabriskie. Oh. Who has never been hinged in her entire life, apparently. No. Mm -mm. She is like aged 30 plus years. Like she looks much older than Sarah Palmer. It's wild. And it's from 1981. So you do the math. But it's it's kind of surreal. It has this dreamlike quality to it. And the horror in it is actually quite horrifying. But it, there's, this, of course, sexual assault in it. It's, it's a trigger warning on that. It is done by the world's largest worm. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that excuses it at all. But it's a very strange movie. And I think it falls in line with what we're talking about. It's a film that I actually quite enjoyed watching and guess what it's 81 minutes all right nice. you don't have an excuse yeah 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 so i've been i've been hearing whispers about this movie in my sort of romero network so yeah it is definitely worth checking out uh, especially people who watched stone cold and enjoyed that for what we're calling pleasure cinema i guess whatever i don't know but people can find me online and crispy retinas reviews kmov writing over it 
the take up. That's the take slash up.com. Andrew, you want to take us out with your one more thing? Yeah. So earlier in the episode, I mentioned a film that took some influence from the 1964 film, The Woman in the Dunes, and which kind of motivated me to go rewatch The Woman in the Dunes, which I hadn't seen in so long. I barely remembered anything about it other than the setup. It's streaming. So this is a direct 1964 directed by Hiroshi Teshigahara, based on a 1962 novel by Kobe Abe. It's available to stream on Criterion, but also can be pretty much rented everywhere else, which is not necessarily, wasn't necessarily the case 20 or 30 years ago. It's a film that spent a lot of time, as I understand it, in sort of in the unavailable netherworld before it finally received some kind of reissue restoration and is now more widely available. This is a fantastic film. It's Japanese. I don't want to say avant-garde, but it sort of shades into that avant-garde territory by virtue Mm -hmm. of being a surreal sort of scenario, but taking its surreal scenario with a kind of like utter sincerity and utter tangibility. There's no implication that what we're seeing is some kind of like liquid dream. There's some, there's some strange dreamy touches, but for the most part, it's a movie that's very much about physical, the physicality of the very metaphorical situation that the character finds himself in. So for those who don't know, a man is out on the sand dunes on coastal Japan, and he sort of wanders into a situation where he's trapped. He's out, he's out there bug collecting. He's a he's like an amateur entomologist. And he gets sort of trapped, mostly by his own stupidity or naivete, in a pit, <laughs> in, a, in which is a house. And in this house lives a woman. And he's sort of enslaved at this house. They put a rope, there's a rope ladder that leads down to the pit and then they pull it up and he's sort of trapped there and he's told to dig. His job now is, and his job along with the woman's job is to dig his way out of the pit. And that's the movie. That's two and a half hours of this man coming to terms with his situation and trying to understand why it is the way it is and who this woman is and why she's doing what she's doing. And is there a way out of the pit? Is there not a way out of the pit? Should I, should I work? Should I like not work in protest? What should I do? It has all the sort of heady metaphors that you can imagine that the situation would have. But one of the things I love about it is how seriously it takes the scenario. It's not a scenario that's trying to hit you over the head with the metaphorical implications. It's just taking the situation as it is. The lead character is sort of embracing his situation or and or fighting against it, depending on the scene. And he's trapped. And the tra- entrapment, the sense of entrapment is like... 90% of why it works so well. It's very much a movie that's about the physical feeling of sand grains as an irritant, as something that gets everywhere and cakes into things and gets on food. There's some spectacular imagery in it. Sexy fucking movie. This, this very is erotic film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very erotic yeah. film. This, this is a favorite of mine. I, yeah, I love the way that you describe it. it's like earnest, surreal, surreal, surreal. Someone else say it. Ernest surreality, surreality, I'm keeping all that in. Uh, I love the way you describe that because it is a very tactile, like sensational. There's things that they do with the sand in this movie. I'm not even sure how they did it. Like there's no special effects. It's just sand. They're filming sand. There's amazing (laughs) things that happen in this movie with sand as a sort of matrix or a medium. It's, it's fascinating. Anyway, highly recommended. The, the film is going to be screening, speaking of Webster film series, this 
in a couple weeks, Tuesday, February 13th, one night only at 7 p.m. as a part of Webster's current East Asian. They're doing kind of like giant masterpieces of East Asian cinema, I think right now is one of their series for this winter slash spring. So highly recommended to see it on the big screen. If you can't see it on the big screen, it's on Criterion right now. You know, maybe we're just an ad for Webster's film series now. The the other films in that coming up, King Who's uh, Dragon Inn, Police Story, Race the Red Lantern. It was published on the day Agetsu is going to play this night, but Seven Samurai too. So it's kind of chronicling, you know, the history and not in a necessarily reductive sense, but kind of cherry picking different movements throughout the history of East Asian cinema. It's a, it's a part of a class too. Unfortunately, we don't get taught the class, but we do get to go enjoy the pictures and it's a ton of great stuff. Catherine, yeah. thank you so much for Stone Cold. Like you have endeared yourself to me even more by making <laughs> me watch this damn movie. I will watch the Rift Tracks. I'm very happy to do that. Sounds like a really good time. It's worth it. I mean, there's like, there's just, there's, it just made me so happy when they did it. And they did it as like their 200th riff or something. And Matt and I just looked at each other. Ah, oh, stone cold at last. What took so long? Yeah, what took so long? What took so long for me to see this damn thing? Gosh. All right. Well, we will be hearing from you again in the future. Thank you for coming this time. And thank you to everyone listening i want to thank our editor jessica pierce social media from kayla mccullough and theme music by amp next episode gummo i hear there's a lot of cat stuff in it and i don't know if i can handle it all right so until then you know just look at your cats lovingly and gaze into their eyes and let them know it's okay do not bring them february 8th they're not allowed for one, and we don't want that trauma. Bye.